Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. My guest today is one of the UK's most celebrated writers, the Times Literary Supplement named for the best British novelist working today, and she's been shortlisted four times for the Man Booker Prize. Ali Smith needs little introduction. Her latest work, Companion Piece, has been described as her pandemic novel, yet that seems a reductive description of such a far-reaching and genre-bending book that encapsulates both timeless and universal questions and helps make sense of our own particular troubled times. The novel's protagonist shares Smith's linguistic talent. To Sandy, language is her main character and she is its eternal loyal sidekick. Indeed, to read a work of Smith's is to give yourself over to an effortless and playful use of language and an ability to snake through epochs and seemingly disparate scenarios with ease. Her characters are regularly thrust together in jarring or unsettling situations and often loomed over by a thin sense of dread. Nonetheless, we are rarely given over to a land without hope, but handed the keys to unlock some understanding of our own complicated world. I started by asking Ali Smith if this book was a reaction to the ungenerous times in which we're living. The problem right now is that our politics has become so, and it's everywhere around us as well, because now, I mean, you just asked me to switch my phone off. We've got our phones in our pockets. The, the news is on every screen in everybody's pockets or, you know, and the information arrives in everybody's pockets very fast. And we're living a very close to the surface life, to the things which are happening around us nationally and internationally in a way that I don't think we ever quite lived before we had this new screen version of ourselves in the world. And something about that has made it possible Exactly as it made possible in the 1930s when Goebbels knew to string up loudspeakers everywhere so that you would hear exactly what Goebbels wanted you to hear along with the jolly music that they were playing outside all the taverns and in all the streets. A certain take on culture. Politics at home and abroad has been working divisively because everybody has always known since the beginning of time that divide means rule and that they're connected. And so in that time, that's the point at which we have to start paying real attention to all sorts of things around us to see what they give, whether they are giving, what it is they're giving us, what it is they're taking from us. And that division, I think, is where those seasonal books you know, you, when you get a crack in a pavement and something grows out through it, yeah, that thing. I yeah. think that's what happened with those books. Didn't expect it. Started writing those books as a whim. In, said to my, my publisher, now that I know we can publish books very fast, which I did because of a book I'd handed in very late and they produced very fast, very beautifully. Yeah, I'll just write really fast and you publish really fast and we'll see what happens. And that was end of 2014 and I started writing autumn, end of 2015. And then the particular divisive nature of 2016 set in quite fast you re- recreated so much of that language because mm. it was it it's was, about language yeah and mm. that that was the the flower or the weed to spot the difference I suppose growing up through that crack in the pavement well, you... weeds are weeds are great too though you know oh no exactly that's what I'm saying let's <laughs> yeah, not let's yeah. not be let's be non-denominational when it comes <laughs> no, but they are they're great they're <laughs> weeds, just wildflowers weeds are anything anything yeah. that grows anything that's natural anything that comes through whatever it is that someone has laid across the surface of the planet which continues to produce life force everywhere it is we you know, be thankful for it. which we are we will be and we'll need to be thankful for if you know if, unless we totally fuck it up which you know we're in the, the midst of doing at the moment but um that is i think that whatever that crack was in things is where those books came from you yeah know? 
bubbling up. You have to just trust to your times when you're writing, and and you have to you have to sort of absorb your times and see what comes through the absorbing of them when you start to reproduce them in language. It feels like a funny thing to to ask you, but do you know where where they start and finish? I felt this particularly with companion piece that I was eavesdropping. I was looking over your shoulder as you sat in your study. I was watching you, you for there, three hours. I was <laughs> I watching know, you for know, three hours I as you wrote this thing. I know you weren't there. Otherwise, I'd have said, look, let's go for a cup of coffee. This is Brush a, your teeth. This, this book's driving me mad. <laughs> Come on, I'll go, I'll go and put the kettle on because, you know, yeah. I'm going to put this in the bin any minute. So, you know, let's, let's, you know. So, um, but commentary, something about... Why does it feel like that? What I is don't know. It? There's something about it. I feel like why do you feel like it was me that you were watching do this? I'm, I'm not saying you're the, any of the characters, or, but I feel yeah, like yeah. you're the... Maybe you're not even the architect. I feel like you're channeling something. Yeah, you're putting definitely not the architect yeah you're it's, putting your, does actually your just... hook and worm into the stream that's flowing underneath and you're picking things out I, I love like that thank you I, you know I, I mean? do really love that notion of it that you you take what is given and also when I closed the covers on companion piece maybe it was a w- two weeks later that the government announced that it was sending migrants to Rwanda I was like what would how would that be treated in this book even if it was a line of dialogue or a suggestion or a thing again it's chucking the hook in the water and seeing what comes out and I feel that these books have become very addictive for, for fans of your work and people that have come to it because of the, the currency I suppose of the, some of the subject matter here and I kind of thought god I wish I wish this had not happened at all or happened sooner so that it could be part of this one because it, it inevitably felt like it might be you know it's richer in this one as well this, yeah. this book begins in anger the companion piece begins in a, a kind of the slough of despond of anger of one person looking at where we are right now and how we've got there, what it is that is pressed upon us as a society and questions of generosity and closeness that mm-hmm. you started talking about in this. And there is a, a line in here which sums up exactly one of the reasons why this person is very angry and why many of us might be angry about how people who have got to this country against all the odds... God knows how they managed it, because that's pretty heroic to have got here anyway, having had all their safe routes taken away from them, full stop, still got here um, and ended up being housed in what had used to be a prison. This is a real thing that really did happen. They were living in a prison which had then, because it had stopped being used as a prison, presumably because it was too draconian as a prison, had been a prison theme camp, you know, kind of theme park. So you would go and look at what it used to be like to be in a prison. And now these, these folk who had arrived across the world... God knows what they'd come through to get here. We were put in the cells, which were Funny still cells. Odysseus was a hero, and anyone else that crosses the seas in absolute claps in irons. We know that. How do we how do we pick who wins and who loses? We know things? what heroic is yeah. as human beings. We do know, and at some point, we challenge any state or society or structure which says that that is not heroic. And the human in us will always come to the surface. Mm. Is what I think. It's the flower that's crunching its, its way up. It's the life force in us that, that recognises other life force openly rather than closedly. And that is the big question we, we face on every level at the moment, you know, all across the world. How do we open? Especially, you know, we've all been, this book is very much about isolation and the isolation that we were all forced to be in yeah, yeah. for those years of lockdown. And when we have been locked down, how do we unlock again? I suppose is what partly what it's saying. Yeah, that's very moving in this book. Sandy is the narrator of the novel. She's an artist who, I don't know, for for Sandy, I wonder, was lockdown good? Was it profitable? I mean, she's insular. She's looking after her dad who's sick mm. and his dog mm. who <laughs> wants to go for a walk at 4.30 in the morning, etc., etc. Everyone feels like everyone wants more time, but not that sort of time, I suppose. How does Sandy 
behave in lockdown. That's that's it. I know only as much about about this character as is in the book, really. But I do know that if in lockdown you were faced with the extra, what we call it trauma, actually mm. tragedy of someone who was ill and was hospitalised under the pressures that we were all under all across the world, then how did you deal with that? On top of everything else, on top of isolation, the existential, which is natural to all of us because everybody deteriorates and everybody's you know family deteriorates and she's facing that as well as the utter isolationism that we were all stuck in at that time. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's where this book began it began with a person this person a total stranger to me a stranger in the world and then the question of how you deal with strangers in the world and how they deal with you and what the preconceptions are between strangers and or people you thought you knew or you vaguely know or vaguely remembered vaguely from remember. university exactly yeah. this is Martina so someone phones up Sandy yeah. and says hi it's me and Sandy has no idea who this person is and the person tells you know we were at college together and Sandy says oh yeah sort of vaguely remembers and the book takes off from that point of tangential touch yeah and becomes a kind of a question of closeness and openness all the way through I love it. Yeah, I, hope so. I mean, and, and Martina says, I move with the times. <laughs> and I feel like she might, I mean, I'm not going to ask you if she's real or not, but I mean, she had that feeling of looking in the mirror and wondering if there's a face going to peer out from behind somewhere. Not in a, in a companionable way, rather than sure. a terrifying mm-hmm. way, perhaps. Mm. Um, she feels almost like, as some of the characters do, that weave their way in and out and of these now five books. Mm. Some of them seem very much like spirits rather than, you know, flesh and blood. How do they appear to you? The real crux is how she appears to the person that she collides with. Because what are we like as human beings? We see things and symbols all the time. We consistently reduce things to their outer appearance until we get to know them a bit and then we start to understand their dimensions. And I suppose that's what another thing that, that with any luck this book is doing, which is that it's questioning the surfaces, checking how the dimensions worked, what it means to live on a surface of time, which has, you know, if we're honest, been produced by a great dimension of time below it. And if we forget what happened in that dimensional um, We're like swimming yeah. over the Marianas yeah. Trench. Yeah. There's a point in the there's a point in the book where Sandy goes for a walk across a park. And she knows that that park is the plague pit Mm. from 500 years ago where lots and lots of people are buried. However, there she is on the surface of it. So that knowledge, how do we deal with that knowledge? How do we connect with, do we bother to connect with it? Should we, must we connect with it? Does it actually matter that we connect with it so we can think how to go forward into a future or what the surface that we leave behind will mean for the people coming after us? Yeah. You know, so it's kind of about the the, the kind of flatness of, of... Isolation, the flatness of the time we all came through in lockdown, everything flattened out and simplified, supposedly. And at what point life enters. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I know this is like, you remember when people complained, or not complained, but people were a bit sad that Richard III's remains were found in a car park in Leicester. That's exciting. And I thought that was kind of, (laughs) well, of course it's going to, it's not going to be... It might not be a beautiful park in a manor house in an estate. Of course, it's going to be somewhere like that. You know, somehow. If you, you, know if you not, go to Rome, you know that's a flower that grows up through the trash. You're, you're wandering maybe. about in Rome, right? And it's mm. a city like Rome, which allows its ruins to be on street corners. Yeah. So you just you are passing a pile of stones that is ancient in Rome, and you are now. And I think it's Freud who stood in the middle of Rome and said you could actually see the unconscious, the subconscious, and the conscious if you just looked. Oh, that's d- good. I know. Down the, <laughs> the if, if, if I've got that wrong, then I'm imagining. Freud, but it's quite a good image mm. imagining of, of it to see that city as a, a connecting of all the internals and the externals of the history that brought us here. 
I felt like that reading these books as well, Ali, that like you used the, the idea, we were talking about the idea of you know, deep time and an, and an accretion and riding your bicycle over a, over a burial pit, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Weird. All these yeah. accretions mm-hmm. of history of words, the changing language, usage of and meanings of words. Mm-hmm. Your books speak to all of these things. And I wonder whether that, as a writer, do you imagine things like that? I, do you, <laughs> here we go. I'm going to ask you a basic one here. <laughs> I, ima- I imagine Freud, man. I'm, no, ima- you know. I'm imagining him standing in room. <laughs> is it shapes or is it always words? Because I, I feel like there is a sh- such a shape to this, such a depth, yeah. there's such a kind of, there are catacombs, there are things underneath, there's mm. molten lava, there's all sorts of stuff. Mm. Well, you mentioned the slough of despair and Dante and things as well, I suppose. Mm. Is that how it, it, there's a sort of Tower of Babel quality that I'm, I'm getting? Babel's not far off. As soon as you start to ask questions of language then that dimension just kicks in because I mean there's a there's a point in this book where the main character looks at the history of the word hello yeah and it's a it's a fairly recent word but but even a tiny scrape of the surface of that word that we say all the time and, and all the meanings it can have right now me and you sitting in the room right now with the word hello and all the meanings it can have as you pass someone on the street or what it can mean plus if you look at the history of it you start to understand the dimensionalization of history through the very language that we use throwing away, cycling along, the, cycling across the surface of it, yeah. you know. And something about that layered quality that you were talking about exists in every word. So if you put two words together, <clears throat> something else, cocktail of... Companion, abel. Yes. Yeah. 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 Something else happens. A kind of cocktail of past, present and future just happens. And if we paid the very slightest of attention to it, everything dimensionalizes differently. And that word hello, which you you get into the etymology of, that becomes very important right, right at the end of the book. And it's so beautifully, and of course we want to end with a hello somehow. I mean, it's a lovely, very moving thing. It's, 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 end with a hello instead of a goodbye. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it's know? great. It's great. Yeah, if it was good enough for the Beatles, <laughs> <laughs> right? Why not? <laughs> I like that. I like that reference because weirdly, this book has a lot to do, and there's no way of even explaining this with Paul McCartney. When I was in the middle of writing this book, and the book features curlews, mm-hmm. uh, the birds with very, very long, beautiful beaks, who are now under a great pressure um, of extinction. Actually. Sandy describes. Sorry to interrupt. Mm. Yes, Sandy cool. describes them as having a beak so long. It was just God was trying to see how, what he could get away with or God something. God was trying to draw the longest line he yes. could do to see what he could get away with. So Curlew, so this is partly about Curlew. So I'm writing this book. I'm in the middle of writing it. You're looking over my shoulder, obviously, yeah, uh, yeah. Robert. Right, you know. so popping a polo mint in <laughs> so you don't... <laughs> it's not generous, but it's polo mint. One for me. Yeah. Um, um, I was sitting in the middle of it thinking, this is just, what on earth? Why am I... What is this about Curlew's? What is this about... I am going mad with this. Uh, maybe I should just... This is just rubbish. I'll just put it in the bin. As I think it in the middle of every book. Uh, actually, but particularly with this one, I'm like, this is between tragedy and farce. How do those two things, how do I balance, how do we balance those things, tragedy and farce, which I think is that that time we've just been through taught us to pussyfoot between those words, mm. tragedy and farce, and those states. Anyway, Curly's, I think, right, this is nonsense. I'm going to stop and, and see where it wants to go. And anyway, at that point, I got an email from the publicist at Penguin who said, would you like to ask Paul McCartney a question? He's going to be doing a, a show at the South Bank and people get to ask him questions. Would you like to ask him one? My mind went blank. I thought, <laughs> Paul McCartney, me ask him a question. Yeah. You know, I mean, my version of Paul McCartney is in my three-year-old self when my cousins used to phone the house and pretend to be him. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was like, I'm speaking to him. Beetle at the that's, age of three. Yeah. Anyway, that's, you know, um, <laughs> but a, 
Were they were I, their impersonations any good? I was convinced. <laughs> well, most most three year olds are fairly biddable. <laughs> it, was, it, was, you know, it was all the Beatles phone, but Paul was my favourite. So yeah. um, anyway, where was I? <laughs> I, uh, I know, think he had um, a question for Paul. The question for yeah. Paul. So I didn't do anything about it for about ten days, and then I wrote back and said, "Okay, I've got a question." And she wrote back and said, "No, it's too late now." But what's the question anyway? So I, I sent the question, and the question was it wasn't really a question; it was more a statement. It's wonderful that you on your Scottish farm let your sheep die of old age. I just wanted to say that's a really extraordinary thing because he does. His sheep live the full lifespan of a sheep. I mean, they're sheared so that they can, the wool's used, but they don't get killed for meat. Mm -hmm. They they live till they die of old age. (laughs) Astonishing. Wonderful thing. And so I sent that question off and of course it was too late for the South Bank. But then about three days later, someone else wrote back to me and said, we sent Paul your question and he's answered it and here's an email, there's a blog rather, and here's the link in the email. So I clicked on the blog and here's Paul McCartney answering the question and he says oh we loved the farm we went there and it was when London was quite hard to be in and Mm. Linda and the kids and I we just had the best time on the farm it was such open air such a wonderful thing to do we loved it we loved it we saved a lamb from the cold I remember it waking up after it was frozen it was a wonderful thing and and then there are the curlews he said Ah. and they fly in and they're so beautiful and they make the most amazing sound and they land like beauty itself kind of thing is kind of what he said and then I thought oh no I'll keep writing this book <laughs> so okay, thanks, I know, Paul. I know. Okay, yeah, really. That's amazing. I know. Well, that's as chancy and as random as the cracks in the pavement are. I mean, you you, you take your chances. You yeah. yeah, and that's wonderful. And I love how many hands hands that went through in a way as well. It's an indirect form of kind of divine intervention from both of you. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I mean, he titled an album Ram, didn't he? Yeah, with Ram, one of his right. Scottish, yeah, yeah. one of the ones that was recorded the, in Scotland. That's right. Well, when, you, when they first went to the farm, yeah. there's that fantastic picture of him holding, yeah. you know, straddling a ram to hear it. Yeah. It was what Alan Garner calls a given. When you are going mm. mad with a book and something lands on your desk and you recognise it as totally chancy, then you know you're not going mad. And to keep going and to have faith in whatever the thing is, which is amorphous, in the whatever the creative impulse is. The curlew is an amazing thing and it's such an unwieldy bird for this this girl that turns up in Sandy's life mm-hmm. who's a sort of craftswoman, a blacksmith, a kind of suits. She's knowledgeable in the ways of, of healing people as well. Mm. She's a sort of amazing, she's wonderful spirit. I yeah, suppose, blacksmiths as well. were. Blacksmiths knew all about all the creatures and people brought their creatures to blacksmiths to look after them. And they also, right. also blacksmiths would marry you in some places. I mean, blacksmiths had an, an incredibly important role in every community, but were also kept to the edge of the village yeah. because they were very powerful. People thought that how could they... Were know, they seen as sort of alchemists? Was yeah, it, was it yeah, witchcraft you could, and you all could that change jazz. things. If you could melt here, metal... Yeah, then okay. you were you had powers. So blacksmiths were that girl in here and her curlew. You know, she befriends a curlew, which is an impossible thing to do, actually. Curlews are wild. They're the wildest of all the birds, according to every source I've managed to find about curlews. And they, harbingers of bad luck. Apparently. No, no. I, they're harbingers, harbingers of, of... They were called the... Does pil- it depend on what time of the year they arrive there or something? They were possibly... Yeah. If, uh, presumably... Uh, well, anyway, what they are is very meaningful to us as yeah. human beings and yeah. have been since the very start of of recorded narrative. They're in the earliest Old English poems, curlews. They're in holy readings of what things mean. You would go, if you saw a curlew, it was like you were being nodded at by God. It was like a kind of a kind of divine, and, right. and, and something divine had taken notice of you. Meanwhile, they were also very, very delicious to eat because everybody thought they're 
flesh was very pure because with those long beaks, how did they ever eat anything? Presumably they lived on air, therefore their flesh must be pure, therefore we'll make pies of them. So they were, you know, kill, killed in their thousands but for, for pies until 1948. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Spring Watch yes. with Ali Smith. <laughs> and actually, I mean, they're a bit actually, like a woodcock, aren't actually, they? They're similar to a woodcock. Spring Watch also. is not far off because <laughs> in Spring Watch, one of the Spring Watches, they did a, a section about uh, curlews and about how they are being cultivated because they are so under threat. Mm. And in Ireland, there's a all, all over the country, actually, we have to support these projects because the curlews are disappearing faster and faster. The projects to, to cultivate the birth of curlews and the environments that curlews can live in because we're losing them by so the day. Their calls are really, and their, their calls are very recognisable. Yeah, yeah. I suppose maybe they're easy to be hunted because they you can hear them. They just know the, the environments now. They, they can't survive in the environment because the environments are all getting poisoned and, and they're now um, eroding anyway. There's space for them to live as eroded. It's, they've stopped being killed, but there's, they can't, the environments but now, now they're just they, they, they can't, over. They can't actually survive. There's no place for them to have their, their babies and they're just disappearing. But we're addressing it, but we have to address it harder. I wanted to ask you one thing about craftsmanship. We've talked about blacksmiths. All sorts of smiths seem to be pretty good on this territory. And it's I, a common name. My God, imagine that. Imagine, well, the maker of things. Imagine the maker, maker of things. Imagine so many makers of things. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, it's an yeah. amazing thing. Yeah. You celebrate that. The subtlety, the care of making, the laying on of hands almost is, is all over this book. They're not mm. mucky handprints. They're, mm. they're subtly done. But there's something in that about all these five books and in all your work, Ali, that there is a joy in the thing itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I these so. have been beautifully bound as well. Yeah, they're really beautiful I know, the, the, things. The, the, the books. That seems to go hand in hand, the whole thing. It's a beautiful presentation. It's a beautiful myth. I turn somehow. in very, very fast a, a book which I've written as if I'm skating over ice, really, and it goes into a publisher who, who just turns it into this beautiful thing. Uh, you know, I hold these books in my hands and I can hardly believe that they exist really because they're so beautiful and they don't feel like anything to do with me, especially not from that kind of hurried, what do I do with this? Where's this narrative <laughs> coming from that happened with each of them? They were written on such a tight deadline that I'm still amazed there's any of them exist, actually. The impetus for the seasons was to write fast, publish fast and see what happened. Mm. It was that simple. It was an experiment. And see, see what came of it and something did come of it. I don't know what, but something came of it and certainly they made a beautiful book out of each piece that came of it and that companion piece again has been produced on the hop very fast and answered by my publishers by producing it very fast again to such a beautiful extent that I can't quite believe it but it's a hairy business to write and then to yeah. after and the people at the publishers are just there's I have such a sense of the communal energy now of publishing and of the industry and of the real expertise that goes in at every level to every book that's produced is exciting beyond belief. Wonderful. And that's lovely to hear because mm. it feels like it's been a straightened industry and it's been a kind of industry under threat. The bookshops themselves, obviously, for obvious technological, mm. sad technological warehouse crappy reasons... But this is a book that people want. They want to come. I mean, they look beautiful on the shelves, if that's not too kind of basic a thing to say. The aesthetic of them is stunning. Annie Smith plus David Hockney oh, equals a, it's a wonderful thing. It's pure luck, man. I mean, what do they feel like on it. the shelf? You said that it doesn't feel like it. It feels like an experiment that had not a lot to do with you. How do you feel when there's a whole stack of them in a lovely bookshop? Again, it feels like nothing to do with me and aren't they beautiful? Well, yeah. And that's probably the, the right thing to feel about it, actually, because then you can go on and write the next one. So a, a little bit of distance helps, but it's, God, they do look nice. Actually, if you open this one as well, we in, in all the seasonal books, we've got a work of art at the back. 
yeah. tucked in at the back, a picture by one of the artists who features. And in this one, the publishers have done on the end papers at the beginning and the end a gradation of the colour green so that if you start the book, okay. it's, it's the same colour, but it's very just less saturated. And as you move from the opening board yeah, the inside to, front. to the backboard, yeah. the green d- d- deepens so that something about getting to the end of the book means that the, the green has deepened in your hands. I hope it works for, for folk. It's very slight, you know, but it's... I, th- I have to say, I didn't pick up on that. I, I was too busy delving into, in, but, into the words. You know, with any like it's... it's... splashing about on the surface, wasn't I? Well, no, it's, it's just it's there, and it's there regardless of whether you are conscious of it or not, you know, which is what art does. It's there, You know, it's there, and it works on us consciously, yeah. unconsciously, whether we're conscious of it or not. And it hits a place, and it's so difficult to write about, actually. You can write about... It's so difficult to write about. You can write about where you like it. You can write about what it mm. makes you feel. Like books. You've got to be there, basically. Yeah, you yeah. have to be. Yeah, and it's interesting to see a reproduction and then to see a real, the, the real thing because the experience is so different if you're talking about visual art. It's yeah. exciting, actually, to be in the presence of the, the original colour. You know. I lo- and that was the thing. I mean, during talk, we talked about lockdown a mm. lot and that's obviously one of the genesis of, the, of these series of books, or this one particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much did you miss going to galleries? So I know you're oh, obviously God. such a. It was you, great to be back. Lover. I have yeah. to say that's that's been one of the loveliest things about coming back out into the world is is being able to to go back and see art again. When we couldn't, when there were all sorts of other things you could do, but you couldn't go into an art gallery. That was awful. But no, the, I know I miss it. It's kind of moving to walk back to see some of these things that you love. My first, aren't we lucky to be able to see them? As oh, well? are we lucky? Are we lucky? But, you know, those three words, aren't we lucky? The first thing I went back to see in a gallery was an Alfred Wallace exhibition at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, yeah. where I live, and um, and it was so alive with idiosyncrasy and vision and determination and a life kind of kind of scraped into beauty, and it was beautiful. So that was great. Oh, it's so lovely to hear you talking about other mm. things that you love. It's wonderful stuff. I wonder if we might hear you reading a little bit of companion sure. piece um, what about the thing about hello that i was we were talking should about we, it, should yeah. we do hello there's a little bit about there's a little bit where the history of hello happens doesn't it yeah hello 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 it's comparatively quite a recent word but like everything in language it has deep roots In all its forms, the dictionary says it's a variant of a word from Middle French, hola, a combination of ho and la, making something like, hey there. It might also connect to the old hunting cry, hello, for when you sight what you're hunting and shout out with excitement as you start the chase. Or perhaps it might be closer to the sound of the word howl, like when Shakespeare uses it in Twelfth Night as one of the proofs of love. When one character tells another that to prove this love, she'd hello your name to the reverberate hills, till there's nothing else left in the air or the world but the name of the beloved. Hello your name to the reverberate hills, and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia! Or maybe it comes from the old English word. Helen, which is a very versatile verb that can mean to heal and to save and to greet all at once. Or from another Old English phrase altogether, one that means may you be hail or may you be whole. It's possibly also the old high German word you'd have shouted if you were at the side of a river and needed to get a ferryman's attention. A form of it turns up in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a poem about the terrible act and ominous aftermath of the killing of a bird. 
the fate of the sailor who kills it and the deadly fate of his companions. First the bird comes playfully to their hello and brings good sailing weather, then the mariner kills it. After that, everything turns into deadly stasis in the poem. After it, shout hello all you like, no bird comes. In any of its forms, hello can mean all these things. So to finish, Ali Smith, hello. Oh, I love it. <laughs> hello, Robert. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was lovely Thanks to have for, you on the programme. Thank program. you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Ali Smith, whose latest novel, Companion Piece, is published by Hamish Hamilton at Penguin Random House. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. 